We're going to finish John chapter 5 today. <laughs> but hang on to your hats because we're rushing into high winds with deep waters, okay? So be ready. It's a lot here. A lot of application to make out of Jesus' words to the Jesus' words to the people that wanted to kill him. So we've been looking at this discourse or lecture, whatever you want to call it, that Jesus gave to these religious authorities in the temple in Jerusalem after he healed a rather dramatic healing of a, a lame man. And this discourse of Jesus runs all the way from verse 19 to verse 47. And what led to it um, was the conclusion of the religious leaders in the temple that Jesus was a blasphemer and deserving of death because of what he said when they were haranguing him about violating man-made Sabbath regulations. And Jesus said, well, you know, he said, I can do good works on the Sabbath because my father works on the Sabbath. His father being the living God that created the universe. And they took this, verse 18, as Jesus making himself equal with God. The ultimate blasphemy. So death immediately came into their minds. This guy deserves to die. And this is long before the cross came. So they're, they're early on, they're ready to have him killed. Now Jesus might have said, no, no, I'm not saying that. You're misunderstanding me, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't make any argument about that. Instead, he speaks of his relationship with the Father in a way that doesn't backtrack from that idea at all. In fact, he emphasizes it. He explains in detail why he is equal with God and why they should accept that idea. He is God's son, not as men might be called the children of God. You know, we're all created in God's image. We're all God's children, not in that sense. He's the unique son of God, sharing eternal divine attributes that only belong to God, the very nature of God. So verse 20, the father loves the son and shows him all things that he is doing. Verse 21, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even the so, the son gives life to whom he wishes. Verse 22, not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. So that, verse 23 says, so that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. It's either true or it's blasphemy. And they have to make a choice about that. So he lays it right before them. Equal honors, astounding claims, such claims demand absolute proof. Now a deranged madman could claim to be God or the, or the Emperor of Rome or Teddy Roosevelt or all those kind of things, but we're talking about God here, he's, he is saying he's God. So what's the proof? What's the proof? Well, last week, verse 31 through 38, we saw the evidence. He started talking about testimony that Jesus is actually who he is. And for one thing, he talked about John the Baptist, who was the first real prophet to show up in Israel in 400 years. And his job was to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And he, John, pointed to Jesus as that special person. And John was a prophet. Now these religious leaders, they're not prophets. So they should have submitted, submitted themselves to the authority of a prophet. They should have acknowledged what John said. And remarkably in verse 34, Jesus said, he says, I don't really need John's testimony. That's not the main thing. 
But he says if you believe John's testimony it will lead you to salvation. That's what he tells them. And Jesus himself doesn't need the testimony because he has something he says it's just much greater. So Jesus has the Father's testimony and the Father's testimony is seen in the works that Jesus does. These miraculous works which are not few they are many and they're constant and you can't question them they're impossible things that happen that he does. Healings, restoring withered limbs, making the blind see all of those kinds of things. Verse 36 Jesus says um, these things the Father has given me to accomplish and then in verse 36 he says the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So those are the, that's the testimony of the Father. The works. So they have all the evidence they need to put their faith in Christ or at the very least to take a much more standoffish look and say well let's really pay attention to this guy and give him a fair look you know. At least that. But why didn't they? Why didn't they do that? Because unbelief they locked in their unbelief and we ended last week at verse 38 where the Lord says you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him whom he sent. There's a reason God's word is not abiding in, in you because you're not believing in the one that he sent. So we called this last time the great failure on their part. Their inability, their unwillingness to recognize all the wonderful things God was doing around them in their day. It was right before them. So how could they miss seeing the excellence of Jesus and the glory of Jesus? Yes, he's a human being. He's a working class Jew. But how many working class Jews are doing that? Healing the sick and raising the dead and giving sight to the blind. I mean, he's not a normal person. Why didn't they embrace him? The signs were all there. So now, uh, starting in verse 38, um, Jesus is going to explain to him the two things that he wants to conclude with. So we're going to look at the last part starting here of this discourse. So first he wants to explain to them the condition of their hearts. That's what matters the most. And then he wants to talk about the last witness. So there's one more witness, but the condition of their hearts doesn't listen to the witnesses. So they're not going to consider it. They're taking it out of consideration. But he wants to tell them that. So the final witness, verse 38, is the word. His word is not abiding in you. That's the scriptures. So you've got these two things. You've got the word of God, the scripture, and you've got their hearts. That's what he's going to deal with. They are, those two things are intrinsically bound together when it comes to having any spiritual benefit. You need to have the right heart and you need to have the word of God. So human beings, men can have, they can have the word literally in hand. They can have it with them. It can be their thing can be their guide. They can even call it that. But the word not abide in them. I could read this every day and the word not abide in me. If my heart isn't right with it. And that's what Jesus wants them to see. And you know what? We see that all around us. All the time. If you survey the religious American world. It's, it's pretty amazing. And the religious world most people would say. Oh yes the Bible. God's word. That's what they would call it. And I'm not talking about just having your Bible on the nightstand where it collects dust. I'm not talking about that. That's a problem, but that's not the problem we're talking about. I'm talking about people that actually read it and actually know it. 
people can build their lives around the Bible and know its contents well, really know it well. They can talk about it with other people. They can take notes. They can even memorize portions of it, maybe even be teachers of it. Yet the word does not abide in them. It doesn't live in them. They don't, they don't do with this what God wants them to do with this. And that's the problem. So yes, you can have the Bible. That's what these, these guys that Jesus is talking to, they know the Bible. They know their Old Testament. They, at least they know the law of Moses. That's where they spent most of their time. But they know the word. But they don't do with it what God wants them to do with it. So who spends so much time in the word of God but doesn't have it abiding in them? Well, there's a lot of different kinds of people that do that. I'm going to just run through a couple of them that I was thinking of as I was thinking of Christ's words here. One are the academics, the people that study the Bible in an academic way. They know the Bible really well. Mainly they're interested in speculating about it. How did that come to be? Who actually wrote this thing? Um, they write all kinds of scholarly papers about it. And I believe in good scholarship. I think it, scholarship should be top-notch, thorough, accurate, helpful, but they just spin fanciful theories about it and where it came from out of an unbelieving heart. And they've drifted far afield by embracing just made up speculations about the scriptures and where it came from and what influenced it and all that kind of stuff. They don't keep the word in their heart. They, they literally hold it at a distance in terms of their inner being. It's, it's an object to study, not a reality for their life. In a very different way, you have very self, self-absorbed teachers of the Bible, pastors, um, people that love to express their own opinions about what matters. They, they talk about from themselves. Their opinions are only loosely related to scripture. They, they look through the Bible all the time because they're writing a new book and they have a brand new idea and they can't find it in here so they look for words that sort of connect to it and then they find a verse that kind of sounds like what they want to say and then they say they, they proclaim that as backing up their their particular idea they search through the Bible but they're not searching for what God wants them to get out of it they're searching to have it back up their own ideas they use the Bible as kind of a God stamp on their opinions that's pretty common in Christian literature one very well, very well known pastor in the South uh, is so committed to his own ideas that, well, gosh, I guess it was a year or two ago, he said that Christians need to unhitch from the Old Testament. <laughs> unhitch. And, and he said that because unbelievers don't like the Old Testament. They read it and people are killing each other and God orders the Jews to do certain things and um, God's holiness puts them off. And he says, you know, that keeps people away from coming to church, so we have to unhitch from the Old Testament. This is a very famous pastor. It's offensive to unbelievers, so we better let that go. No, no. People aren't saved by rejecting the God that's in the Bible. That's not how they're saved. But this man thinks they can be, and the embarrassment about the Bible is causing him to change the way he does his ministry. Another version of using the Bible for your own ideas is what I would call the ideological pastor. And this is usually an obsession with politics. Laura and I once went to, uh, we were on the other side of the country and it was Sunday and we wanted to go to a church. We looked in the phone book and in those days they had phone books and, and, <laughs> and we found one. It was called a Bible church. Remember this little tiny church we went to? It was this little church and they, it was all about arch conservative politics, all of it. 
They had a wonderful display table that was all politic books. The sermon was about politics. Everything was about politics. They wanted to know if they wanted, could sign us up to be in this movement or this kind of a thing. It was just Christ was not there. He wasn't part of it. He wasn't the center. Now they all would have said, yes, we believe in Jesus. We believe in all of that. But man, that was horrible. And then on the other side, you've got progressive Christianity, which is, does exactly the same thing, only for them it's the ideological left. And that's where you see drag queens literally in churches giving little sermons to kids, like uh, we've seen on the internet. Abortion is a sacrament in those groups, and the blood of Jesus as an atonement for mankind is mocked. That idea is mocked. Are you saying that God would kill his own child? What, is he a, he's a cosmic child abuser? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying the Son of God gave himself voluntarily to pay for my sins because I'm going to hell without them. That's what I'm saying. You can call God a cosmic child abuser, but uh, that's madness to say that. So there are people who have a Bible at hand. They read it. They know it. But they use it for their own purposes, not for God's purpose. So there are a lot of people like that. And there's, of course, charlatans who always find a way to manipulate the Bible to get money out of people, right? Benny Hinn, one of the worst human beings on the planet, he, it's prosperity, he actually just like last week, he, he told a very large crowd of people, if you send me money, which is sowing your seed, your seed faith, right? You, you send money to me, my ministry, you will not only be prosperous in 2024, but everyone you love and your family and your friends will come to Christ and be saved. He actually promised that. Now that sounds like crazy. I mean, that's way beyond the normal promises, but Benny's, you know, he's low on funds. So the promises have to get crazier and bigger, so he just promised that. Um, f finally, there's, there's also just traditional religion, long-standing, well-established faiths that have the scriptures as their foundation, dutifully read it, and miss the main things it says. The, the central things, they don't believe those things. And in these cases, tradition has been layered over the scripture so thoroughly that scripture is misused to support their tradition, not used as a standard to measure tradition. That's what the Bible's for. That's why the reformers said, they, had, they came up with a phrase, always reforming. Because we, we, that's a tendency of human nature. So you've got this denomination. After 100 years, 200 years, it starts looking like a certain thing. And the little unique things that make it sort of special become the big things and the main things. And nobody can question those things even though they're not in the Bible. So always reforming means somebody can stand up and say, let's actually look at the Bible and see if what we're doing is consistent with the Bible. And, and then they get yelled at because they're causing trouble, right? So it's that kind of thing. Tradition starting to get layered on top of the Bible. That's, that's a very common thing in old faiths, if you will. It doesn't take very long to get there either. So uh, Martin Luther, when he turned the world upside down, think about Martin Luther. He's, here's an Augustinian monk. He's given his whole life to serve God, who's troubled by his conscience because he actually takes his sin really seriously. And he's assigned by his mentor in the Augustinian order to teach the Bible in a university. Luther, you're a pretty sharp guy. Why don't you teach the New Testament in the university? He thought it would help him, like therapy. You know, because he thought he was too serious about his sins and stuff like that. So Luther starts studying the Bible and, my goodness, we're saved by grace. I was never told that. I'm a monk. 
I'm, I'm a priest. I was never told that. But he finds it in the Bible and starts the Protestant Reformation. Well, where had the gospel been? You know where it had been? It's been? It had been hidden under layers and layers, centuries of new ideas being lathered onto the scripture, just slathered on there, taught, burying it. All kinds of ideas, all kinds of doctrines, all kinds of stuff that aren't in the Bible at all. Where does it say to pray to Mary? I mean, where? <laughs> Nowhere. Where does it say to pray to dead people? Nowhere. Where does it say in the scripture that you have to earn your salvation? Where does it say that in the gospel? It, it doesn't say that. Buried. The gospel was buried under mountains of man-made ideas, formulas, and doctrines slowly added on top of the scriptures. It didn't start that way. It happened over centuries. The new guy, you know, the next guy. Oh, that sounds really good. We'll make that a doctrine. It's not in the Bible, you know, but that's okay. We'll, we'll give authority to this one guy to say that whatever he says is doctrine, and that is what the Bible would say. So that kind of thing. Something just like that happened in Judaism from the time when the Babylonian captives returned from Babylon, 6th century B.C., and the coming of Jesus. So there's like 500 years when that happened before Christ came, right? And it started with a great revival of the word of God under Ezra. This, this wonderful movement happened. This great work of God. Who was Ezra? He was a priest and a scribe that came back from the captivity in Babylon. Ezra 7.10 says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's like perfect. Yes, that's what they needed, right? They, why were they in captivity? Because they kept breaking God's commandments all the time. And he decided to proclaim them. Now it doesn't say he added to it. It doesn't say he twisted it. It doesn't say he had his own ideas and just decided to search around in Deuteronomy and Exodus to see if he could impose his ideas on other people or get them to follow him. He just taught the Bible. That's what he did. And when he returned to the Holy Land, that's exactly what he did. So this is Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 2. Describes what he did. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding. That means they had the kids in children's church. Or at least the little ones. On the first day of the seventh month. It might mean that. I just made that up. He read it from before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. <laughs> Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So they taught the people directly from the law. They didn't add to it. They explained it. Sounds kind of like, kind of like what we do here, huh? We don't bury God's word. We're, we're holding it up. And if we have traditions in our little church, 
we measure them by the Word of God. We can question them by the Word of God. They don't become who we are. We take pains actually here not to impose our own ideas on it. You definitely don't come here to listen to me about my wisdom. I know that. <laughs> You've told me that and I totally agree. <laughs> Ezra and his Levitical helpers laid an excellent foundation though which was the word of God as they had it the word they had and it seems to happen so often after Ezra's time some people came along that started their own schools of Jew Jewish thought interpreting interpreting scripture thinking about other ways we can look at all that kind of and usually this happens because frustrated religious leaders don't like how people are behaving you know oh my gosh these people are so sinful just preaching the law isn't going to be enough it's not enough preaching the gospel Christian preachers feel the same way preaching the gospel is not enough we've got to make some extra rules for these people well are those rules in the Bible no but it will help them keep the rules of the Bible if we make rules so anyway you've seen this happen um, over time the, the new rules become the central point of identity for certain groups, churches, whatever you want to say. And the rules take over and that becomes the defining characteristic of those kinds of Christians. So we see the same thing in fundamentalist circles in America. We are a fundamentalist church. We believe in the fundamentals of the faith. But you can tell who they are by their commitment to things who are, that are not found in scripture. Oh, that's that group. That's this group, right? Those kind of things. It might be clothing. Women can, oh my gosh, Sherry, you're wearing, you're wearing slacks. It's like you're not wearing a dress. It goes to the floor. You are a compromising, wicked, <laughs> liberal-minded person. It, um, I once heard that you went to a square dance. That, dancing, dancing is forbidden. Playing cards with a deck, Uno's okay, but a card that has like spades and club, that's not okay. You can't play with those, those kind of things. A really big example are the King James only churches. Now, I love the King James Bible. There's nothing wrong with it, really, <laughs> except it's good news for 17th century man. It's, it's the, a lot of the words are sort of archaic now, but, but they, these people say that's the only true Bible. Anything else is not only inferior, it's a compromise of the absolute worst sort. You're a monster if you use the King James, I mean, if you don't use the King James Bible. Well, actually, if you use a new King James, you're pretty bad too, because it's the 1611 King James, it's the pure word of God. So, there's just certain kind of people that love to add to the Bible or invent new strange doctrines like the infallibility of a 17th century translation of the Bible, right? Well, let's go back to Ezra for a second. So. From Ezra to Jesus, there's about 500 years. And oh my goodness, what mischief can happen in 500 years? <laughs> so that's the same thing. Ezra's descendant, the Pharisees are actually the descendants, spiritual descendants, if you will, of Ezra. They were the ones that loved the law, wanted to teach the law and kept going. But it just kept getting, not based on the law, but they kept adding the rules. And the rules became their identity. And the rules became central. And the law itself was not central. And that's why Jesus, when he talks to the Pharisees, he says, what's the word of God actually say about these things? Well, we've got these rules. Well, your rules don't mean anything. They're, they're your opinion, you know, that kind of thing. So 500 years of tradition in Judaism, by the time you get to the first century, had buried 
the meaning of the law. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus explaining the law and what it really means. He says, you have said, but I say to you, this is what it means. And what they had said was not accurate. 500 years of tradition, adding to Moses, adding to the prophets, the words of men. And that becomes their identity. They define themselves by their traditions, not by the scriptures. And that's a huge problem. It can happen to anybody. So that's one of the great fears we should have. Are we adding tradition to the scriptures? Are we in sit now? Traditions are okay if they're seen as not binding, but they somehow they always become binding and people start freaking out when you don't follow the traditions. So you got to be really careful about that. So Jesus is coming to people who are steeped in hundreds of years of tradition. So the same thing happens here. But they believe they're Bible men. That's what they think. If you ask them, are you Bible men? Oh, yes, we are. We read it all the time. That's our thing. So Jesus is coming to those kind of people. And those very people hate the one that God sent to bring light and life to them. They hate him because of their commitment to their traditions. They hate the very one that came in fulfillment of the scriptures. So what happened? How did that happen? Well, Jesus points to their heart. It's in the human heart. When the Bible says the human heart is more deceitful than all else, you'd better believe it because that's exactly the, the truth of it. And you need to look in your own heart for that kind of deceit as well. Any deceit, actually. So what happens in John uh, 5, 37 and 38? Jesus says, the father who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice nor seen him at any time nor seen his form. Verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him whom he has sent. So God sent Jesus. He testified to Jesus with unparalleled miracles and this perfect holy life that Jesus was living. And Jesus spoke about God's word with great clarity, with great powerful application. He also called the spiritual leaders to account for their failures. And Jesus saw the motives of these people, these spiritual elites in Israel, and mostly he found in them unbelief and man-made religion. And the, the root of it, if you want to talk about the heart, the root of it was the esteem of other men. That's what they were after. When the esteem of other people is your great desire, you cannot be objective or honest about what the scripture says. You're going to see it through a lens. You become part of the problem, not the solution to the problem. You cannot please God. Your heart isn't given to what God is doing if you're like in that mode. You're not looking for what God is doing. It's not your primary interest what God is doing. But how do other people see you? And because we're all sinners, if, if we're not born again, our primary interests are always going to be tainted by sin. But even if you're born again, that can creep in. That's why you've got to watch for that kind of thing. And here, with these guys, sin is seen in their antagonism toward what God, God's will is and what God wants them to do. They're antagonistic towards that. So verse 38 again, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in him whom he has sent. From there now, Jesus turns to how they elevated the Bible itself to be their savior. This is not my savior. This tells me about my savior, but this isn't him. And they had that flipped around. They miss what the Bible is about to, to claim that eternal life was found in the Bible alone. In the Bible, not in the savior the Bible revealed. 
So verse 39, you search the scriptures, Jesus is talking, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, he says. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You guys love the Bible. The Bible's all about me and you won't come to me. That's what he says, flat out. They made a tragic error and they did it because of their own sin. They rejected God's Savior and patted themselves on the back because they spent so much time in the law of God. They thought that that alone was the path to heaven. And I know you were sitting here, probably some of you are thinking, well, could they really have thought that? That just being in the Bible is saving? Yeah, they really did think that. In fact, one of the most highly regarded rabbis of the first century, Rabbi Hillel, who said some very wise things, but he said this is too, and this is one of their leaders. The more study of the law, the more life. If he has gained for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. So the more you know the law of Moses, the more life you get. And when you die because you know the law of Moses, you're going to go to heaven. There's a, a little pre-Christian book called Baruch, the book of Baruch. It's actually in the middle of the Catholic Bible. It's an apocryphal book. But it says, the law stands forever. Those who keep her shall live. Those who desert her shall die. So the assumption is that you can keep the law and you will earn salvation by keeping the law. That is the opposite of what the Apostle Paul says. It's the opposite of what the New Testament teaches. You, you and I cannot possibly be good enough to merit heaven. Are you really going to go before God on judgment to say and say, I read the Bible every day. Where's my house? <laughs> I, I was so in the word of God. I went to Bible study. I did the whole. That's why you should let me into heaven. I hope that's not your plan. Even if you do do that every day, and I hope you do, but that, I hope that's not your plan when you get there. Why should I let you into heaven? I've read this from cover to cover. The law stands forever. Those who keep her shall live. Those who desert her shall die. That's what Baruch says. But that's not what the New Testament says. We cannot possibly be good enough to merit heaven. Knowing Deuteronomy by heart does not take away your sins. It just doesn't do it. To be worthy, you have to keep the law. And no one does. The only human being to ever keep the law of God is Jesus Christ. He's the only one. And he took that perfect life and laid it down. He sacrificed it so that his righteousness would be credited to you and your sin would be put on him on the cross. That's how a person is saved by God. Question. How could these Bible loving guys before Jesus know that that was the way? How could they know? Wasn't it all new? Isn't Jesus just shows up and suddenly the rules are all different? No, that's not it at all. In fact, if these men were as committed to studying the promise of the prophets as they were the law of Moses, they would know. They would know. They'd be looking for Jesus. They'd be looking for that Savior. I guess the most famous example would be if they had studied and committed themselves to and memorized and always talked about Isaiah chapter 53. Then they would know. If they did that as much as they looked at the law of Moses, they would know. Here's what that says, Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he was 
pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's not New Testament. That's Old Testament. Isaiah 53.10 The Lord was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief. If he would give himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge the righteous one. My servant will justify the many. And he will bear their iniquities. So salvation isn't in the law. Salvation is in a person. And the person is the servant of God who suffers the penalty for our sins, who bears the iniquity of us all. That's what the prophet says. And here in John chapter 5, you've got priests and rabbis persecuting Jesus. That's the word that's used in verse 16 of chapter 5. They're persecuting him and they're seeking his death in verse 18. Now, the apostle Paul, before he was the apostle Paul and he was a guy named Saul, a rabbi and a Pharisee, he believed just like they did. He was persecuting Christians just like they killed Jesus, he would kill Christians. This is what he says about these guys because he's in the book of Romans, he's looking back and talking, he's answering the question about the Jews standing before God and what they need and he says in Romans chapter 10 verse 2, he says, I testify about them because he was one of them. They have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So what does that mean? Fundamentally, first century Jewish leaders were one version of humanity's great failure. They did not have God first in their hearts. They were making up their own way to heaven. Just like so many Christian leaders have done down through the centuries and, and even today. They're, they're, God is not first in their hearts. They are. They are. It's another form of going astray. It's prioritizing self over God. And that's what Jesus aims at for the rest of chapter 5. As he brings his discourse to a close here. Let's kind of finish this out. But give me a couple minutes. Maybe more than a couple. Verse 41. Um, Jesus uses the word glory and and by that he's the way he's using it here he means esteem or respect that kind of an idea honor honor might be a good synonym for it so verse 41 and 42 are some of the least discussed I never hear Christians quote these verses but they're actually pretty important they they should kind of be up there with the known sayings of Jesus because it really clarifies he identifies the human condition here verse 41 I do not receive glory in other words esteem from men But I know you. How would you like to have Jesus say. I know you. That you do not have the love of God in yourselves. So ever since the fall of man. Human beings do not naturally have the love of God in them. They don't love God. Not as he is. They'll make up other gods. 
but they don't love him as he is. They like to imagine a God in various ways and use God or see God as a power to appease the powers that be or manipulate the world or whatever but the love of God is not there. At best human beings are ungrateful children that have run off to join the circus if you want to put it that way. God you're so holy we hate that we're gonna go join the circus we're leaving we're running we're running away I'm putting a backpack on and I'm running away I've got a bag of cookies in my pocket I'm out of here. People like to imagine God in all kinds of ways you know. We tell ourselves that our sins are small they're foibles I love the word foibles I do have some foibles you know little little sins but our underlying sin actually is our rebellion against God that's the human condition and God is ranked low in our affections and in our hearts ranking God low is the greatest evil that there is because he is our perfect creator and he's the highest good there is. So Jesus uses the word love in verse 42 for a very good reason. You can be very religious, very religious and not love God. So Jesus says I know you, I know you, you don't love God. I know you're super religious but you don't love God. C.S. Lewis said um, again describing the human condition he says we are not merely imperfect creatures who must be improved. We are rebels who must lay down our arms and that's exactly what it is. Well we don't want to lay down our arms. That's how people are. People think God's alright. I'm not against God. God has his place. <laughs> but I'm king of my life so I'm going to make my choices and my desires. My desires have to come first. God has his place but I'm the king of my life. What is it that these priests and rabbis love? What's driving them? Well Jesus says I know you and it's the esteem, the respect, the admiration of other people. People like them. Verse 43, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? How can you believe if that's where your heart is? How can you believe in the one God? How can you believe in the one God sent? When your primary concern is not God himself but it's you. That's a kind of self idolatry. It's worshiping yourself. That's the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount actually. Where Jesus blasts the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he says? Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. So that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you they have their reward in full. And when you pray you're not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you they have their reward in full. 
Matthew 6.16 Whenever you fast do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do for they neglect their appearance so they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you they have their reward in full. And then in Matthew chapter 3 goes after them even harder. Matthew 23.5 They do all their deeds they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. And the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher. And you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father for one is your father. He who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders for one is your leader that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Those are the words of Christ. They had it exactly backwards. And that was the motive of their heart. They put themselves first. John, when we get to John chapter 12 someday. <laughs> in verse 16 it, it says very plainly they love the approval of men. That, that's what they love. And that's what Jesus says I know you. I know what you love. And it's not God. So these men persecuting Jesus in the temple are part of a religious club. And, and as people do they vie for the respect of other people. They think more about how much they're honored than by how much God is honored. Much more. And that can be true in many aspects of life. We're hopeless we're hopeless if God isn't the one we have their ultimate regard for. If we care most about what he thinks. So the natural man, the man not born again, the man without spiritual life, no matter how religious he is, God is not the center of his affections. We are the great object of our love in those situations. So the men Jesus faces sought so earnestly to have the praise of men. They, they forgot about whether God was pleased with them. That's what he's telling them. Verse 44 again. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another. And do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. It's a perfect question. Jesus always asks the best questions. Penetrating questions. If in your religion you don't live for God. How can you ever believe ever really believe what God is doing. You can't. So seeking praise from men does not allow your heart to love God as he should be loved. God just becomes a tool for your ego. I am godly. And I hope you notice. <laughs> I know the scripture. I have keen insight. I am respected. Well if you're like that you have your reward in full. Verse 45. Do not think I will accuse you before the father. Oh good, he's not going to accuse us before the Father. Wait, we're not done. <laughs> the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. If Moses was really your authority, Jesus says, you would believe in me, because I'm the one he wrote about. When did Moses write about Jesus? Now Isaiah definitely wrote about Jesus. We just saw that right there. When did Moses do that? Well there's a lot of places actually. All this sacrifices, the whole ritual system. Everything's really about Jesus. But if you want to get more specific. In Genesis chapter 3. Moses recorded the words that God said to the serpent. 
And he talked about the seed of the woman, a person, your seed, one of your descendants would crush Satan's head and defeat him and become the victor. And then a little later in Genesis, the most important man in Genesis in so many ways is Abraham. And God speaks to Abraham and also talks about the seed of the woman. So it's gone on many centuries now and we're down to Abraham and someone from his seed. Genesis 22:18. he says to Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So all through the Bible you're not looking for rules. There are rules, that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for a person. You're looking for this special person. Deuteronomy 18:15. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Somebody that has the absolute authority to give law, to change law. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. So they were waiting for someone, a prophet with authority like Moses. And everything, absolutely everything pointed to Jesus being that person. Okay, so in this chapter Jesus mentions John the Baptist, a living prophet who pointed to him. He mentions the miracles, a clear testimony of the Father, verse 37, who could do such signs unless God was with him, as Nicodemus said. The scriptures we have seen today, not just Moses, but all the prophets who foretold in detail the coming of Jesus, they're all witnesses. Everything pointed to Jesus as the one sent from God, but they wanted to see him dead. They hated him. Why? Because they're committed to their man-made system of religion imposed on top of what Moses gave them. Layered on top of what Moses gave them. And that's what they love. And they love their man-made rules and they love debating all the minutiae regarding the application of the law. That's how bright men distinguish themselves. How well they could talk about the laws of Moses and all the little rules they invented to go on top of the laws of Moses. And then they would receive respect and they love the respect of men more than God. And that kept them from salvation. That's what Jesus is telling them. It was their way, that's their way to reject Jesus, to reject salvation. And people have all their ways of rejecting him, right? People have come up with all kinds of things. This is the super religious way of doing it. But I wonder how many people in America can say, in our day, well, you know what? I'm, I'm not thinking of uh, scribes and theologians, right? Although they can do this too. How many people reject Jesus though for the same reason? Losing the respect of other people. Just your average, average Joe American, right? Your typical person like us. If I accept Jesus, my friends are going to say this about me. I'm worried about that because their love and their respect matters more to me than being saved by God. I don't love God more than them. I love them. I love what they think about me more than I love God. I want to be one of their guys. I want to be on their team. I don't want them thinking ill of me or looking down on me or moving away from me because suddenly I love God and I love Jesus Christ. A true follower of Jesus in most situations does, if you follow Christ earnestly it doesn't endear you to a lot of people. There's, there's a distance put there sometimes. Now maybe they'll love you just the same but often they won't or you're worried that they won't. Your existence kind of puts a wet blanket on their lifestyle. I've, I've, 
I've heard people say, say to believers, you know, you just preaching all the time when they haven't said a word. <laughs> it's just their lifestyle. Look, love your friends, love your unbelieving friends, but love Jesus more. He matters the most. He is God. He's a better friend than any of your friends. Anybody you know. He knows your secrets. God knows your secrets. The ones you won't even tell your friends. And he loves you still. He knows your thoughts. And he loves you still. He died in your place. He took the wrath of the Father on himself. For you. But you need to lay down your arms. You need to quit the rebellion. You're on the wrong side. Come to him. Esteem him more than all creatures. All temporal things. Jesus told these men. You're unwilling to come to me. So that you may have life. Don't make that mistake. Come humbly. And embrace. Who he is. And what it means for you. And that might mean rejection by men. And that's okay. Because. We're going to love God more. Let's pray. Our great God, we've, you have done everything to reconcile us sinners to yourself. You've revealed yourself in your son. You've revealed yourself in your word. We need to add nothing to that. The Bible contains all we need. And for our salvation, all we need is Jesus. Our Savior and Lord who willingly bore our sins on the cross. So keep us from all so-called wisdom that adds to your word. That sees Jesus as insufficient in some way. Let us see you in him and love him as our true friend. And our source of eternal joy we pray in his name. Amen.